0: Folks, and welcome to Christ in Every Word, a podcast of the Concordia Bible Institute, housed on the beautiful campus of Concordia University, Wisconsin. This is your opportunity to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the sacred scriptures with me, Dr. Brian Gurman, Associate Professor of Theology here at the University, and the director of the Concordia Bible Institute. We are making our way through the book of Genesis, Christianity in Genesis, to be more specific. Where do we see the person and work of Christ and, by extension, the life of his church, his body, the church, in the book of Genesis? How are these texts of Genesis, uh, you might say, constitutive? They are formative, how they give shape and meaning and definition To the life of the Christian church of all times and places. That is, after all, what it means to be sacred scripture, not just historical reportage. Here's a book about some old things, Once Upon a Time. But text that continues to determine, uh, speak a meaningful word here and now throughout all times and places about God's people in Christ Jesus, his son, our Lord today we 're going to take a look at chapter nine so we 've been through the flood last time, chapter eight, uh, the kind of the aftermath or the the mercy of God triumphing over his wrath this time we 're going to see a blessing upon Noah, and then the rainbow you know that one, and then also this obscure kind of strange narrative about Noah and his sons at the conclusion here. so here we go let 's jump in first things first, and maybe we 've heard this before, but listen carefully. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? Right at the beginning of chapter 9, this is exactly the kind of stuff that you're hearing in Genesis chapter 1. Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. And the point here, and I've probably made it before, is that we have a kind of new creation here with God's flood. Think baptism again, as we've talked about quite a bit. It is a regeneration, a new birth, a new creation in Christ. That's what baptism is. And so no wonder in this Genesis narrative you're going to see this new creation talk. Be fruitful, multiply. At the same time, this is not a complete obliteration of the earth, is it? God restores. I suppose you could wipe the hard drive clean as we talked about this. But no, he chooses Noah and his sons and sons' wives and he preserves a remnant. Sound familiar? He works through a small number or works through one for the sake of all, as he will do at the cross. Uh, he restores this creation. He works through the the physical elements of this creation. Our Lord himself will become flesh. He will take on the physical reality of flesh and blood. He'll have lungs and a heartbeat and so on. Uh, that's a physical, tangible Body, The things of this creation will be restored. Noah is told, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We will, at the resurrection of the body, have physical bodies. We will have this new uh, world, the life of the world to come, as the creed puts it. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. This is very similar, isn't it? Does that sound familiar? This is image of God stuff. Remember that uh, God made humanity in his image, image and likeness he makes them. And then it's have dominion over the birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, and so on, beasts of the field, creeping things. The image of God is also not obliterated, but uh, restored, you might say. It carries on, it endures and uh, God maintains that. So it's kind of like in chapter 5 when Adam has another son, Seth, in the image of God. It's just because of the fall into sin doesn't mean that the image is obliterated. That carries on. And again, this this language about what it means to be in God's is is reiterated in a whole new way. This is new creation talk. This is restoration talk. Um, it's like Genesis 1 all over again with the be fruitful and multiply, the image of God. And now we had have God's provisions. So let's listen carefully to this. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. It's kind of a, I suppose, a nice envelope structure, you might call it, where we start with be fruitful and multiply, and we end with fruitful multiply, and then we have image of God talk, and then the second last thing is image of God talk, made... Pretty explicit, isn't it? About the shedding of blood. Let's focus on the food. The food is a big deal. In the Garden of Eden, the first command is what? It's about It's about the food. This is what you can eat. You can surely eat from all the trees and don't eat from the one in the middle. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, the sin, the fall into sin, was also having to do with one. It was a sin of eating. The curse... Uh, by the sweat of your your brow, you'll eat uh, bread, and the serpent you'll eat dust. All this left uh, reference to eating the curse. So we have eating in the Eden, Eden in the fall, Eden in the curse, uh, eating. Uh, we also have this emphasis. Well, of course, eating in. Our Lord's body and blood to rest, to forgive and to restore, to bring about a new creation. Here's the new meal. Here's the new command uh, about eating, and that is, take, eat, this is my body, this is my blood. Here the Lord has something very special to say about blood, though. Doesn't that sound familiar? So he provides food for them, and now it's not just green plants, it's everything. But you've got to stay away from the blood because in the blood is life. That's a fascinating claim. It's, uh, it's quite redolent in that it ev- it's evocative of a lot of different passages of, of the Scriptures. There's something special about the blood. Don't consume the blood, which is all the more striking when our Lord says, Take drink. Right, but don't consume the blood because there's life in the blood. The life is in God's hands. God is the author and perfecter of life. So first and foremost, and second, there is this, well, you saw the reckoning of blood, right? Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. There's a price tied to blood. Blood is precious because it is life, but there's also a cost. It's precious. It's beyond gold and silver. And our Lord would shed his holy, precious blood. There's a reckoning there tied to it. Life is meaningful. It's sanctified. It's holy. It's precious. It's valueless, priceless. So there's a reckoning for it. Hands off, God says, that's mine. And so all the more uh, striking when he sends his only begotten son to redeem us, not with gold or silver, but with his only precious blood. This is business of blood being sacred is an explanation of why we're able to have this new creation right here with Noah, and that is because of the blood of Christ, the blood by which uh, we are redeemed and given life. Don't consume the blood because I have a much greater blood that you'll be consuming when it is shed and poured out for the forgiveness of sins by my only begotten Son fascinating stuff here uh, at the beginning of Genesis chapter nine new creation talk and uh, the emphasis on the the sacredness of blood then we get into the the promise this is just a fascinating chapter um, because of how rich it is this rainbow maybe it's a lot of this kind of I don't know now we know the rainbow for different reasons I suppose. Um, But God says that he's going to establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Alrighty, so very fascinating uh, passage here about the rainbow. Um, It's kind of interesting. Luther talks about maybe the rainbow. Just didn't exist before this time, and here you have it. Uh, a few things need to be said. First, is that this rainbow is a covenant, it's an everlasting covenant. The nature of God is one that He makes promises. Um, I suppose we could just be transported into the new creation right here, but no, He makes a promise, He makes a covenant with His people that will endure throughout the generations. And this is totally how he works with us in the Christian church when he gives his word, his promise about what's coming down the road. Now we see dimly, but we will one day see clearly God working all things together for the good of those who love him, for example, bringing us safely throughout the pilgrimage of this life to our eternal promised land. Uh, The next thing about this rainbow, you might think... um, well, that's good for a time and then it's done. So I'm reminded of Re- um, Revelation has a lot of talk about you get the rainbow imagery, the bow around the throne and so on. This is an everlasting promise. So as much as it's not, a, well, not right here, right now, at the same time, it is something that will be remembered forever and recalled uh, into eternity. You see the rainbow or the picture of the bow Revelation chapter 4, for example, in the new heaven and the new earth and around the throne, this kind of picture of of God of all the things to beautify God with, we have this uh, sign of his faithfulness to promises made. There are a lot of things you could you could know by God by his power, right and glory and might and so on, but one thing is faithfulness to his promise. He's batting a thousand on these things. He remembers his word. He will perform it. He cannot lie or go against that word that he has covenanted with his people. And closely related to this is the fact that this is a sign. He gives, I mean, he could just say that word. He could say, oh, I'll never again do this. I promise. There's my word. But he goes on to give a sign of that covenant. A sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. So here he is giving a physical, tangible sign of this eternal word displaying his faithfulness. Now, does that sound familiar? Of course, our Lord does this. In the Christian church, we have these physical, tangible elements Tied up with word, as in water and word, combined with word. Uh, Bread and wine with word. Take, eat, this is my body and blood. Bread and wine combined with body and blood. Uh, This word of absolution spoken by the called and ordained servant of the word. In our midst, our Lord works with the physical, tangible stuff of creation. These are sacraments. This is what's so special here about this rainbow as well. It's a sacramental sign. Uh, we might not call it a sacrament proper, um, working forgiveness of sins, as it were. But this is sacramental all the same in that it is a physical sign, element in the stuff of creation, light and water and so on. Does it sound familiar? Jesus has the light of the world and water, baptismal and flood and so on. Uh, in order to make this rainbow, uh, which is itself, again, a sign of this everlasting covenant. So this tells us a lot about the nature and character of God, not just once upon a time, but how he continues to act Uh, throughout the Christian church of all times and places. More to say here, and it has to do with this odd event with Noah and his sons and the nakedness and drunkenness, and oh my, how do we work through this? Well, it's quite fascinating. I'll bring in some Luther and, and have lots to say about it.
1: But first, a quick break, and we'll be right back. We'll be back in just a moment to the Concordia Bible Institute podcast. In the meantime, I'd like to have you consider this question. What is most important in higher education? How do you prioritize all the knowledge to be gained at an institution of higher learning? Concordia University, Wisconsin, located on the shores of Lake Michigan in Mequon, Wisconsin, just north of Milwaukee, is an institution that is committed to excellence in learning, but at the same time realizes that excellence in itself is insufficient without development in vocation. We believe that God works through our vocations, our callings, in order to serve the needs of those around us. The mission statement of Concordia University puts it this way, Concordia University, Wisconsin, is a Lutheran higher education community committed to helping students develop in mind, body, and spirit for service to Christ in the church and the world. You can learn more about the over 70 programs offered at Concordia by visiting the website, www.cuw.edu. And if you're benefiting from our Christ in Every Word podcast, I encourage you to support this ministry by mentioning it to others and by offering your monetary support. Please consider supporting the Concordia Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org and clicking on the Contribute page. And now, back to the podcast.
0: Alrighty there, folks. We are back with our study of Genesis chapter 9, Christianity in Genesis chapter 9. We have this new creation talk. We have the promise, the covenant um, signed by this bow in the clouds. It's just a fascinating thing how God works through these. It's like the blood at the Passover. Why are we putting the blood on the doorpost? You ever thought about that? And then. You look carefully at Exodus 12, it's what? It's a sign for you. Who's going to see this blood on the doorpost? You're going to see it. You're going to look at it. Uh, The Egyptians are going to look at it, presumably, people on the outside. Uh, And God himself, when I see the blood, God himself is looking at the blood. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Same thing with this bow. When I see it, doesn't he just remember this because he has perfect memory? Everybody's looking at this sign, just like everybody's looking at that blood at the Passover. God himself sees the blood. He sees you through what he has done on behalf of you. He sees you through the bow. He sees you through the blood. He looks at you as righteous in Christ, promised uh, a new creation in Christ, and so on. The light of the world. Brings life-giving waters, just a great, uh, just a great indication of the kind of God that you're working with here. Okay, the last part of this, <laughs> a little odd, but here we go. Uh, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. So already you get this sense of okay, wait a minute, Canaanites later on in the Bible. This has been written, you know, you get the scope of the Bible here. Wait. Canaanites think promised land and kind of the constant thorn in the side. Okay, so Ham associated with Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people, the whole earth, uh, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Okay, so this is a, I mean, this is an all-encompassing account here. This is the new creation here, the people going forth. Noah has three sons. This is going to be very important. Shem listed first. Shem. Uh, From the consonants in Hebrew that mean name, shame is name in Hebrew, kind of easy to remember because it rhymes. Shem means name, he will be the bearer of the one who uh, bears the name above every name. Ham, father of Canaan, and then Japheth, or Japheth, okay, these are very big, just the point, very big, three sons, okay. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Okay, now I love how the narrative just tells you that. Why did he do this? To be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Well, I mean, one thing is, like, this is old-school humanity stuff. Uh, The highest fulfillment of, of man, just, I mean, thinking of the curses, women and childbearing and man working the ground, sweat of the brow stuff, um, vocation and toil and working the ground. This is this is before the fall kind of stuff. He put man in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So this is very near and dear to what it means to be human. We're going to work this work and serve the creation. So this is this is a return in some ways to Eden, although it's not going to be perfect. We're going to see some issues here. He planted a vineyard. Um, he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now. Is he, is this his own, planting a vineyard? I mean, this is the stuff of the promised land. Is this Noah? I mean, some have looked at this as Noah trying to return to Eden. Let's, Let's get back to the garden. Let's get some land. Let's work it. Let's have a vineyard. The wine, everything will be great. It'll be like paradise, promised land. It sounds like a promised land kind of thing. The vineyard. Vineyards you didn't plant, you'll enjoy the fruit thereof. You know, all this language throughout Deuteronomy before they go and have the land and Joshua and so on. Um, so it sounds like he's kind of, I mean, Noah, This is, is this like a failed attempt at getting his promised land here on earth? I mean, by the way, we are continually restless here. Nothing will ultimately do for you what you need it to do for you here uh, on this planet. There is a restlessness that just won't be satiated until our hearts rest in in thee, in God, as Augustine prayed. Uh, so Noah is a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard. He drank the wine and became drunk. I mean, the wine as a gift of God brings about happiness, we hear in the Psalms and so on. But of course, it's in this fallen world now, even though we have this kind of new start, new creation, it's things are abused. And uh, this good gift of work and soil and vineyard and wine... Well, we just can't even handle God's blessings anymore. That's how depraved we are, our sinful condition. He lay drunk, he lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, this is, I mean, tent, I love that, temporary dwelling place. This is just how we are in our temporary dwelling place here on this, the pilgrimage of this life. Nakedness in the Garden of Eden, right? Right. Was not ashamed, and then here we have he lay uncovered, and this is shameful. So it's kind of like again, it's, I, I I I hear in this kind of Eden deja vu only, instead of the nakedness that's no shame, now we have nakedness that's shameful. the The bliss is now abused. We can't handle it. We can't even handle the God's good gifts and so on. So this is just a a little microcosm, as it were, of what it's like to live in a in a post uh, fallen world. Okay. The, even though Ham is mentioned second above uh, earlier, now he's mentioned first because of his actions. And Ham, the father of Canaan, notice why do, the Bible doesn't waste words. Why are we re- repeating this? We already know this. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Okay. In these three sons, just to kind of show the cards right up front, in these three sons, first things first, you're going to get three different approaches to dealing with sin. Ham is what? He looks upon the nakedness of his fathers, and he tells other people. So he kind of delights in this sin of his father, uh, and he spreads it to others. Meanwhile, the brothers, what, take a garment, and in the text is clear, they didn't look, they, they walked backward, they didn't look at the father's nakedness, they didn't revel in it, they didn't use it as an opportunity for selfish gain or selfish motive, selfish purposes, um, Luther sees this as ham taking advantage of this shameful incident for his own for his own purposes uh ham wanting to uh take advantage you might say of this high priest Noah again noah he's a preacher he's he's like the high priest he's the bishop of the world. people would have flocked to hear his sermons. Luther said he lives forever, you know not forever, but a long 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 time. And um, this is like Ham seeing a pastor or priest uh, make a mistake and uh, and putting the worst construction on it or Ham even wanting, see this is why I should be the high priest or Luther I think says things along that line, Ham wanting to usurp Noah's glory as high priest or thinking that he can be a better priest or look at this, you know, these pastors or these priests out there, they're they're sinful individuals also, so I'm just as good as they are, or even better. I could do this job a lot better than they can, these pastors out there. They're just fallen individuals too. Uh, so just disregarding the ministry. Uh, Shem and Japheth are both involved in the same activity of not looking upon this, but covering it up. Think best construction here. They're not... Reveling in this shameful incident, their faces are turned backward. They didn't look upon it; they covered this iniquity. You might say, Um, "The garment so rich in Genesis for what God does for us." Again, Garden being garments of skin and so on. um, They bring a garment; they cover the nakedness with a garment. This is like that baptismal garment, covering the iniquity of our sin. Covering a multitude of transgressions by the blood shed for us in Christ. Um, Noah wakes up and he gives this curse to Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. All the other questions aren't really answered. How does he know and all this? It's just the, the fact that this is what happens when you deal with sin and for selfish purposes, take advantage of it and disregard forgiveness. Cursed be Canaan. That approach towards sin and shame and so on, disregarding the garment of forgiveness. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. But he also says this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be a servant. So between the two sons that both do the garment thing, Shem is still given priority, which is kind of mysterious. It's kind of fascinating. Didn't they both do the same thing? And yet they get a different blessing. And Luther's big on this, and I think he's right. And that is, Shem is the one through whom the Christ child will come. So he's blessed first. Canaan be his servant. Okay, let everything, the knees in, in on heaven, on earth, and under the earth will bow to our Lord. But yet may God enlarge Yepheth. Let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be a servant. So there's similarity here, but there's different difference as well. Yefeth means enlarge or broaden or widen. And I love this because Luther picks up on the meaning of the name and says, this is exactly this kind of third son is exactly representative of those who are brought in and widen and enlarge the church of Shem who were by nature Gentiles, children of wrath, just like the others, Ephesians 2 puts it, and yet were grafted in. Think Romans 9 to 11. You've been grafted into this holy olive tree. The ones of Jepheth, let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Tent dwelling. Uh, You are in the tent. Um, Luther took this as as, uh, places of worship you're in the tents you 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 are concerned about the worship of the god of shem and the and and live by faith in the one who will come through shem so these japhethites uh, may god enlarge japheth and japheth is a picture of all those brought to faith who are not by genealogy of shem included in that promise that god would enlarge those of Shem by the ones who come through Yapheth. This is like three different, on the one hand you have those who reject God's forgiveness, on the other you have the ones um, of Shem, the one through whom our Lord will come, and then yet you have these Gentiles grafted into that holy line all the same time. And in that, Luther says, you see a picture of the church of all times and places, the Christian church. As it lives and moves and has its being. Fascinating stuff here in Genesis chapter 9. Noah goes on to live a long time. I've said probably enough about his his old age in earlier podcasts, so I'll leave that there. Hey, spread the word, my friends. We're going to keep moving in the book of Genesis. Tell others so that they can learn more about uh, God's Word with us. The mission of the Concordia Bible Institute is to provide Christ-centered Bible instruction from distinguished experts who teach Christ in every word of the Old and New Testaments to strengthen faith and spread belief in the one true God. Again, if you benefit from this podcast series, I encourage you to consider supporting the Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org, and clicking on our contribute page. Until next time, my friends, I'm Dr. Brian Gurman, wishing you all God's blessings in Christ Jesus our Lord.